So welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Karen O'Neill on the current Ukraine crisis. So Karen is an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency care and an experienced humanitarian. She's divided her career between emergency medicine and nursing within the department within the north of England and the humanitarian sector. She's also an established member of the World Extreme Medicine faculty. Karen has experienced a various number of deployments within disease outbreak and control and disaster response. Some of her projects include working as an emergency nurse at sea on the Save the Children Search and Rescue Migrant Crisis Response Programme in the Mediterranean. She's also worked in West Africa in the Ebola crisis, working as a medical advisor for the UK National Ebola Response Programme, providing assistance in Sierra Leone. She also, in the wake of Typhoon Haiyan, uh, responded as part of the UK Med, well, the UK International Emergency Trauma Register, it was at the time, uh, providing emergency medical care to populations living on remote islands that have been injured during the disaster. So she's worked both in hospital settings and community outreach posts in Uganda, as well as working on programs delivering primary care to slum dwelling communities in Mumbai. So in addition to this, Karen has enjoyed leading programs in paediatric care in a hospital in Malawi, which is where we first met. And she's also continued to support a charity that assists children with chronic and ongoing illness um, needs in southwest Uganda, as well as advising on rural outreach health programs. So Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Erin. It's nice to be with you. So what we wanted to do tonight really is just look at the evolving crisis in Ukraine, the displacement of, of, of IDPs, so internally displaced peoples, but also just to how to, from your experience, how to get it right, how, how you've seen sort of navigating the troubles, navigating some of the, some of the areas and problems which you've seen in the past and how to maybe going forward, they could, uh, we could look at approaching humanitarian aid to, uh, to look at lessons learned. So maybe if you could just speak to some of the humanitarian emergencies that you've been deployed to in the past and, and sort of maybe some of the meta themes you've carried forward, uh, Karen. Yeah, so I've had quite a mixed, a mixed experience, really. So um, my initial experience um, was working on development projects um, in Uganda. Um, that was in hospital um, and outreach. Um, and that sort of gave me a really good foundation. Um, and then I've since sort of had quite a mix of um, responding to sudden onset disaster, which was um, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. Um, and that was... Um, working with the British Navy um, and Save the Children, um, delivering primary care to remote islands. Um, so that was, you know, quite a mixed experience, really, because um, that did incorporate some public health response as well. Um, and then that's sort of been carried over in the work that I did um, during the Ebola um, West African crisis, um, which um, I worked with the organisation UK Med. Um, that was um, primarily focused on um, the uh, Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, um, which is, you know, hugely um, a public health response, um, as well as um, the acute provision of care in Ebola treatment centres uh, to patients. Um, and also then working with um, uh, migrant and refugee populations um, in the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean. So these are predominantly populations that were um, uh, traveling across Africa um, through Libya 
um, and boarding boats um, heading out into the Mediterranean. So then bringing populations um, uh, back to Italy um, for their ongoing journeys. Um, and then, you know, from that, I've uh, been involved in various humanitarian trainings um, and been ready to deploy to different disasters. So it's sort of quite a mix, really, um, as well as sort of the consideration of um, deploying to um, more hostile environments, um, such as, um, you know, more um, countries affected by civil war or, you know, situations like we're seeing at the moment in Ukraine. So Karen, that's a fantastic mix of experience, actually. So just come back, come back from Hungary myself. And at the moment there, they're receiving approximately 20,000 IDPs or indeed refugees per day across the border um, and through in through Budapest and out the other side. Could you maybe speak, it sounds like you've, you know, you've seen a whole meld of experience uh, in treating uh, displaced refugees. Uh, and peoples, could you maybe speak to some of the lessons learned from from sort of stewarding groups and 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 or maybe um, how uh, to provide an essential response to 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 massive groups of, of refugees that that are moving um, from war torn or indeed natural disasters? Gosh, the needs are you know it's it's hugely hugely complex. I mean, we're looking now in the Ukraine, I think World Health Organization in their most uh, recent situation report, you know, they're projecting that um, 18 million people are going to be affected by uh, the conflict in Ukraine. You know, this is a huge, huge number of people. Um, you know, and I think the numbers are something like 4 million people um, uh, looking for refugee status in surrounding countries and beyond. Um, I think it's sort of six and a half million people are going to be internally displaced. You know, you're talking about huge, huge populations here. And that's just the numbers that we're seeing as potentially reported, you know, in these ongoing conflict situations. One of the huge challenges is that, you know, we don't necessarily get the most reliable information because um, particularly from the most um, impacted areas, the information that's come out is slow, unreliable and communication lines are down. So we don't necessarily get um, a true picture of what's going on. And that's when we've got, you know, the expert agencies that are going in that are trying to do these needs assessments on the ground to find out what's going on. Um, and I think, you know, even just people trying to leave um, countries and just gain uh, refugee status, you know, people don't leave a country and they're suddenly given refugee status. And this is very much something I learned from, um, working with say the children on the migrant um, crisis in the Med, you know, for some people, um, it can take them years to get refugee status um, and to get the official papers. Um, and they can be in countries for years on end and actually be asked to leave, particularly um, unaccompanied minors once they reach 18. Um, obviously it very much depends on the countries that are in, but they can, they can have their um, status rejected um, and be deported. So, you know, sort of having this refugee title can be quite confusing in itself and it can be quite um, destabilizing for a, an individual because their status, um, you know, isn't necessarily secure. Um, so, you know, that's, that's very difficult um, in one respect. And then, you know, you've got the other problem of internally displaced populations. So people are displaced from their own communities. Um, and I saw this hugely um, in my work in Uganda after the civil war in Uganda, people had left 
their communities. And it's even things like moving within countries, the language, um, you know, the, the, the dialects can change, the language can change, the needs, the cultural experiences. Um, you know, they can be temporary camps that set up that suddenly, you know, they grow and grow and grow. Um, this was huge in Uganda and again in Sierra Leone, um, that these sort of internally displaced people's camps become permanent camps. Um, but then authorities at some point might say, well, actually, no, you know, you, you were never a stable um, settlement. You know, it's it's time to close up this settlement. So the issues are complex. And then internally displaced persons camps um, or settings, you know, you have multiple, multiple um, complexities within those environments as well, you know, in terms of overcrowding, shelter, water and sanitation and hygiene needs, um, you know, and health needs on top of that as well. So such a complex situation. So Karen, we were talking offline about coordination efforts and how difficult it is to coordinate. I think a seminal piece of learning from the Haiti earthquake back in 2010 was the, the lack of coordination and need for coordination uh, on the basis, as you were saying, of a robust need analysis, that there would be um, certainly uh, this, 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 this collaboration between different agencies to ensure that the need the, the need assessment was both accurate and then being fulfilled in a coordinated fashion. Um, uh, so having had colleagues, having had Mark Hannaford and colleagues being be in Ukraine recently and come back through the Polish border, they speak of a, a really um, united and coordinated efforts on behalf of ICRC, on behalf of um, some of the other aid organizations, which, which almost provided a, a physical corridor of, of, of food, of clothing, of shelter, and logistical efforts on the back end. So that they're equipped with um, almost all the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the, at the base, but, and then uh, the potential to move to, to, to different countries. But again, not, that's not uncomplex from a, from a perspective of what different countries will ask as a prerequisite for entry to two different countries. So that's still, still quite complicated. Um, I know within Hungary and within Budapest, they were providing buses directly through to Germany. So nonstop buses from, and, and then in Budapest Central train station, there, there was food stations, there was clothing stations, there was medical care stations, and they could get on buses straight through. From your perspective, Karen, do you see, how do you see the coordinated efforts playing out so far? I think from what I've been, from what I've heard so far, um, there's been um, some good collaborative efforts. Um, and I think, you know, we could be really proud of, um, you know, the WEM convoy that actually went over um, and delivered delivered supplies and seeing their coverage, um, you know, it, it looked like people were really drawing together and, you know, that makes you proud to be part of that. Um, I think what is very different in Ukraine is I think there's um, huge global outpouring and support um, and sympathy and, you know, the whole world is really trying to unite to help right now. And it's, you know, it's heartening when you see these images that, you know, people are disembarking, um, you know, trains and people are welcoming um, people, you know, people are opening their homes. You know, this is an absolutely incredible united effort. Um, what you do generally have 
um, in uh, any kind of humanitarian crisis, be it a conflict um, like we're seeing now or a sudden onset disaster or a more protracted crisis, um, you do have the United Nations um, cluster system um, of humanitarian leadership, um, coordination and strategy. Now, I think there's a big impression that in a humanitarian disaster that um, aid organisations and uh, UN bodies of all um, unites have this extremely coordinated effort and or sort of um, help each other out greatly. And it's not to say that doesn't happen, um, but I think often with the best intentions, um, responses to any crisis can become quite uncoordinated. The UN system, um, you know, there's, it, there's various domains to it. Um, and so, for example, the health cluster is led by the World Health Organization. Um, then other clusters, for example, um, include um, education, which will be led by UNICEF, child protection is led by UNICEF, um, nutrition, which is led by um, Food and Agri Agricultural Organization in conjunction with the World Food Program. Um, you've got camp organization, security. So there's various elements to that. So what should happen, for example, um, under the health cluster is that everybody that's working on a health response should report into the system. Um, uh, for example, people should be reporting what they're seeing and what they're dealing with. Um, it should enable health mapping. It should enable disease surveillance um, and control and various aspects. Um, but quite often in these responses, so many aid organisations respond with the intention to help. Um, but when you get so many um, humanitarian actors involved, things can often become quite um, uncoordinated and one organization doesn't necessarily know what the other's doing. They're not necessarily talking to each other. Um, yet the intention is that people will do that. Um, there's been a huge move. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there's the Haiti earthquake. Um, there's been evaluations right back to the Rwanda genocide um, in 1994 um, that sort of raised issues of humanitarian coordination, particularly from the medical um, fraternity about providing a, a standard of a response um, and there were errors made particularly in the cholera outbreak which probably contributed to increased mortality and morbidity rates um, so sort of people going with the intention of helping maybe actually um, didn't quite have that impact um, mistakes again were repeated um, in the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 and the evaluations that came out of that echoed the evaluations that came out of the Rwanda genocide um, evaluation and again like you mentioned um, in 2010 uh, following the earthquake in Haiti these, these mistakes were made again um, and I think you know they sort of termed that the the Republic of um, NGOs, of non-governmental organisations, because so many aid organisations turned up to help. Um, that, uh, you know, at one point, I think one of the evaluations for um, that disaster said that the number of surgeons um, outnumbered uh, the number of patients at one point, or people didn't necessarily um, arrive with the correct skill set 
or um, with the correct equipment to deal with crush injuries like you see in an earthquake. So um, out of, sort of these, we've had quite a lot of learning um, and um, what at the time was the WHO's initiative of foreign medical teams, which is now called the WHO Emergency Medical Team Initiative. And what this is about is trying to um, bring on a more coordinated response, which we did actually see implemented better in the Philippines in 2013 following Typhoon Haiyan. So um, this initiative um, asks countries to report um, what, uh, what facilities and what skill sets they have available on an emergency medical team and what level of care they can provide, whether it's um, the highest standard, which is going to provide um, a full hospital with intensive care facilities, um, or it might be down to providing um, mobile outreach clinics. Um, and you report what you have available. Um, the impacted country can see what's available and then they can invite countries in according to the, the need. So instead of people just turning up saying, you know, with the right, you know, with a good heart and, you know, with driven by altruism, they want to help their, for example, they're a healthcare professional, they really want to help. It might not be that their skill set is required in that emergency. So the EMT initiative is that you are invited in, um, your team is invited in. Um, because there's a need identified. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's what we'll see now. Um, you can see those reports actually on the WHO website um, and it does make for interesting reading. So Karen, from your experience, so how difficult is it in reality to, to sort of get help to some of these people that remain in Ukraine? And I suppose on the back of that, that sort of question, you know, you see reports that, that, that ambulances are being shot at, that there's there's healthcare workers in danger of injury and and mortality. Um, sort of, what's your thoughts on both passage of, of aid to source, but also maybe this indeed the safety of an in-country response versus maybe a border response? It's a really difficult situation. Um, you know, the situation overall in Ukraine continues to deteriorate. Um, it's a huge country, you know, so we know largely um, it's the eastern aspect of the country at the moment that is, you know, predominantly most affected, and that's where your needs are greatest. Um, it's a constantly evolving dynamic situation. Um, entering a conflict zone is very different, for example, to entering, um, you know, a country that's impacted by an infectious disease outbreak or a sudden onset disaster um, so it makes the situation um, very fragile very unpredictable um, and that brings with it another level of training required to enter these countries because really you shouldn't really it's best if possible that you've had the correct training to enter um, hostile environment. So, for example, you've undertaken the HEAT course, the Hostile Environment Awareness Training Course, which actually prepares you um, and certifies you to work in a hostile environment such as a conflict zone. Um, you know, and that also, it, it, it adds another complexity um, to your willingness, potentially, to 
be involved in a response in country in a conflict zone as opposed to maybe working on a bordering country where you know there's never any guarantees of safety you know wherever you work in the world um but to enter a conflict zone to work is incredibly difficult and we know that the areas of greatest need are actually the most difficult to access you know we've seen only last week um the Red Cross trying to make safe passage out of Mariupol, you know, and there's, there's been no, there's been no guarantee of any ceasefire to get people out, you know, and every time we think there's going, that's going to happen, the situation becomes more unstable again, and these, and these populations are trapped, you know, it's, you know, it's a horrific situation. Um, and, you know, there is no guarantee now that working either within a medical setting, working in a hospital, or being a healthcare personnel, it doesn't guarantee your safety. Um, and again, you know, there's been huge um, calls, you know, this is, we've seen globally, um, you know, we've seen it in Syria, Syria, for example, where there's been increased attacks on healthcare services. Um, and, you know, this has resulted in injuries and deaths of healthcare workers. Um, and that makes the situation more difficult again. Um, I think I, off the top of my head, I want to say that I think that there was, and these are the attacks that were reported that over the period of one year alone, I think there was like something like 82 attacks on healthcare services that resulted in um, approximately 40 43 injuries and 70 deaths, you know, and that's in one year alone. Um, so you, you can't guarantee just by the fact that you work in a healthcare facility that you're safe. Um, and, you know, this has been another, uh, another initiative that's been launched about the attacks on healthcare um, workers, you know, the attacks on healthcare initiative. Um, uh, it, it's a global initiative and global campaign um, to try and reduce incidents, but we have to accept that as healthcare workers, we're taking a, su a substantial degree of risk. Um, as are the people, you know, the Ukrainian healthcare workers that are facing this on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and these might be attacks on healthcare facilities. They might be attacks on transport services associated um, on, you know, evacuation convoys. Um, on patients, um, on supplies, on warehouses that, that keep supplies, um, and even um, simple things like the power supplies um, to um, medical facilities. Um, and that, you know, we've heard that's been a problem um, in Ukraine, and that can impact simple things like um, your ability to run um, ventilators or um, to be able to um, use your oxygen supply, particularly if you're relying on oxygen concentrators. So there's all sorts of complexities that come with that. So looking at um, sort of second order effects of war, Karen, so if, as you were saying there, it's not an uncomplex environment really around um, just the application of healthcare, the safety of healthcare workers, but also looking at maybe access to clean water, sanitation, ongoing medication and sort of supply chain issues. Could you maybe speak to some of the second order effects from your experience in humanitarian environments that, you, that you've experienced in the past? 
yeah absolutely um yeah because I think initially we all sort of think about the sort of the acute care injuries don't we? we think about conflict related um injuries and trauma injuries um and you know obviously they're um fundamentally important um, and that they're addressed but then you've got the uh, you know further impact um you know we're seeing reports at the moment coming out of Ukraine about um, the impact on maternal and newborn health services um and child services um and you know this gives a huge rise for example um disruptions in antenatal care um which then results in increased risk of obstetric and neonatal complications um the ability to manage these complications. Um, um, and then, um, you know, you've got disruption to um, chronic health services. Um, so people, for example, that maybe um, rely on dialysis, people that require access to mental health services, um, uh, access to um, regular prescriptions, access for people with diabetes to some, you know, the drugs, life-saving drugs they need, um, insulins, uh, respiratory disease, you need inhalers, um, you know, as well as the impact that the conflict's going to have on people's mental health anyway. Um, you know, there's, it makes the, the management of chronic disease very, very difficult. Um, and then, like you mentioned, you know, you've got the the impact on the, the water um, and sanitation and hygiene facilities. Um, we're already hearing that, you know, children have been dying of dehydration, um, you know, and that just shouldn't be happening because of no access to clean water. And that situation is going to deteriorate in, in areas of poor access. Um, and with that, you know, you've got the risk of food, the risk of um, food and waterborne diseases. Um, and we already know back in 2011, I think it was in Mariupol that there was a cholera outbreak, you know, so that shows that there is a real risk of those diseases further down the line, um, as you know, the water and sanitation facilities deteriorate. Um, you know, we see, um, I think it's one of the Polish reception centers. There's already been an increased incident of diarrhea and vomiting outbreaks. Um, and then there's risks um, to do with um, vaccine prevent preventable diseases. So we know that overcrowding um, in populations, for example, in IDP camps um, is a real risk of measles. Um, and obviously with facilities not being able to deliver um, you know, essential childhood vaccinations that then increase the risks of things like measles or um, you know, when you get the suboptimal vaccine coverage um, and the re-emergence of things like polio um, can prove a real risk as well. Um, and then the risk of vector-borne diseases um, as the springtime temperatures rise and, you know, it gets warmer towards the summer. Um, there's a risk of West Nile fever in the regions um, and tick-borne um, encephalitis. Um, and then also, you know, poor, poor shelter, um, poor housing, um, the increase of respiratory diseases, um, the risk of um, food security and nutrition, you know, the, the disruption to markets and food supply change, um, damage to agricultural infrastructure um, from the conflict, 
Um, and in, in the Ukraine, for example, um, the rates of exclusively breastfed babies are quite low. So there's quite a large reliance on formula. Um, and, you know, that's going to be complicated further um, when, um, when you've got the risk with no access to clean water, for example. Um, so the impact, the impacts are huge. You know, it's not limited to just what I'm talking about here, but you know, the impacts are, are absolutely um, profound. So looking at the, um, because there is a lot of goodwill within the, with not only within the um, countries in Europe, but countries from North America and otherwise uh, giving aid and or time. And there's a lot of good, goodwill within the medical sort of professional, um, different, uh, different careers but also different pathways and people want to both um, provide uh, their assistance and volunteer um, how best can they be involved uh, within the sort of coordinated efforts to your mind Karen? Oh yeah it's a key point because sort of having well-trained and effectual performing staff are pivotal to success of any humanitarian medical me humanitarian medical intervention um, you know, and it's not necessarily possession of a, of a medical qualification isn't always enough. Um, you know, despite being driven by altruism um, and, and great intentions, um, preparatory neglect, for example, you know, to go and work in these environments um, is a failing. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of stories and had a lot of questions surrounding, you know, people wanting to collect up um, uh, donations of medical equipment and, you know, and supplies like blankets and clothing and put them in a van and drive them off, drive them maybe to bordering countries or, you know, enter um, the West of the Ukraine. And, you know, whilst that's good intent, you know, people are doing that with great intentions, it might not actually be what's needed. So the best way is to try and go with an established um, agency um, you know, you've got the established agencies, Medicines on Frontiers, Save the Children. Um, uh, you know, you've got 15 organisations that the disasters, Disaster Emergency Committee are supporting. Um, trying to find an established organisation and actually speak to an organisation that's on the ground and they'll tell you they want your skill, they want your help, they can tell you what donations they need. Um, the WHO has a website that actually lists um, the, uh, the requirements of um, medical donations um, that are actually needed um, within Ukraine right now. You know, we, we have to remember the Ukraine actually has, you know, highly skilled uh, healthcare workers and they have some very good functioning hospitals that are unaffected at the moment by the conflict. And some of the needs assessments that are coming out now is that those medical um, professionals within these environments, they're saying, you know, what they need right now is supplies, not personnel. So it's actually looking at what is on those supplies lists. And I actually found it quite interesting reading. You know, it might not necessarily be what people think. You know, I think people think, oh, we need to send dressings and we need to send um, um, medications. And it's not to say those things aren't needed. But actually, you know, they need defibrillators, 
they need um, tractions, traction splints, um, they need surgical kits, um, infusion pumps, uh, mobile x-ray facilities, ultrasound equipment, you know, and they actually specify um, standard they need as well. Um, so I think it's really important as a medical fraternity that we, we acknowledge the standards they want um, and we actually listen when the skill set that's being asked for, um, that we have the right skill set. This is going to be likely, you know, a protracted crisis. So it might mean that, you know, right now they might need more um, healthcare professionals at work within child um, and maternal um, you know, sorry, their background is maternal and child health. Um, and, um, you know, it might be a, a trauma skill set that's required right now. But further down the line, you know, what we do have to remember is that people undergo um, trauma surgery and, you know, they have these horrific injuries. There's going to be a huge rehab need. So we can't forget those other skill sets that are going to be needed maybe further down the line. We might need our um, infectious diseases specialists further down the line. Um, so it's not sort of all trying to jump in and help right now. It's actually sometimes taking a step back and look, listening to the professional agencies that will tell you what need, what skill sets they need um, and what equipment um, and support they need right now. So, so Karen, you speak to this sort of um, this protracted ongoing uh conflict which which certainly ukraine is looking like it's going to turn out to be very much more protracted um and with maybe multiple deployments from um actors and or um funded organizations like uk med could you maybe speak to your experience of deploying in such a team and your experience of maybe not just uh, practicing your sub subspeciality, but your innate uh, capability to sort of interact within a team and the team dynamics and being a team player and having to be, I suppose, in a way more of a generalist than than a specialist in in what is, like you said, proving to be a very dynamic and complex and drawn out conflict. And so, um, my experience has largely been um, about waiting to be invited in. Uh, to a country um, and actually responding to needs assessments. So um, needs assessments will, um, will specify, you know, as they say on the tin, what's needed. Um, and, you know, these are absolutely fundamental. Um, it's working with, um, with the uh, Ukraine Ministry of Health um, and working um, with um, the healthcare workers and populations that are within the U Ukraine and within the bordering countries as well, um, you know, they will tell us and work with us to establish what we need. So, for example, um, there are needs assessment tools that are available. So it's not going in with your own tool. It's going in with established tools um, and matching, um, matching what is needed. Um, and you very much in many different crisis situations will find um, people speculating what they think is needed. Um, and that's where things can go a little bit wrong. Um, and again, you know, this is all well-intentioned, um, but um, I've had the fortunate experience where um, 
I've, I've, I've been on a team where um, the skill set has been what's needed or um, on one particular team, for example, in the Philippines, we actually ended up splitting into two teams, um, one team working on primary care outreach and the other half of the team actually joining um, the Australian um, emergency medical team to provide more of an orthoplastic um, platform. Um, and, you know, team dynamics are always very, very interesting. Um, and I think you very quickly gel. You have the time of trying to all suss each other out. You often get some very strong characters and you'll get people that are more reserved. Um, and I think it's always trying to work to what each of the strengths are um, as opposed to trying to identify each other's weaknesses. And I think, you know, you very quickly gel as a team. Um, you have to be very, very mindful of working within your, your scope of practice um, and within working within your registration. Because just because you're in another country, it doesn't mean that your registration from the country where you are registered um, doesn't, isn't applicable. Um, for example, you know, my, back, I'm, my background is nursing. I'm a nurse prescriber. Um, and as advanced clinical practitioner, I prescribe. However, in some countries, nurse prescribing is not a recognized qualification. So it's actually knowing um, the scope of practice for your role within the Ukraine or within the bordering countries um, so that you, know, you are working within your remit. Um, but that's not to say you don't approach your role with a degree of flexibility. Um, it doesn't matter whether you've gone to work as the nurse, the paramedic, um, the trauma surgeon, um, you know, it's being flexible and willing to pick up a mop if things need, you know, cleaning down, it's packing up kits, it's unpacking kits, it's, you know, turning your hand to anything, um, really, and willing to be very flexible. And I think you do have to be very flexible in your approach in humanitarian aid, because, situations are so fluid they're so dynamic they're so you know they can be changed and they can change one hour to the next so I think you have to go knowing that is how things might be um, and that you're really willing, willing to pull together as a team um, and I think if you go with that approach um, I think you you know you're already on to a winner <laughs> So, Karen, as, as we've spoken about before, these undifferentiated attacks on healthcare workers and on press and media, uh, which just kind of illustrates that there is um, there is almost a, uh, a lack of differentiation between what constitutes the enemy and what doesn't. And as you said, as an analogue of that, we've seen very maybe very similar in places like Syria and Iraq in the past. Yeah. And, and there's reports as well from coming from press that those that have been attacked, you know, have have had some significant mental health issues on the back of that. So some reporters that have been shot in in various places. Could you maybe speak to stewarding your own mental health in these acutely stressful environments, and uh, and also the through the passage of time having to be almost on high alert in these uh, resource-poor environments for, for extended periods of time, and maybe indeed how you've stewarded your, your own mental health through these uh, instances. 
yeah, I think you have to really think about your own well-being um, before you travel. Um, and it's a conversation that um, I'll often have with my colleagues that I'm going to be working with um, about looking after each other as well as looking after yourself. Um, you know, I think we all arrive with a great sense of motivation and enthusiasm to help and there's very much a willingness to sort of work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which we all know is unsustainable. Um, so one of the key things is actually adhering to rotors, clinical rotors, um, you know, not pushing beyond, you know, willing to work every hour that you're there, um, but actually, you know, working to schedules, looking out for each other, um, looking, you know, telling people what to look out for in yourself so that, you know, you and I might be on a team together and you sort of come over to me and say, Karen, you know, you're not, you know, you look like you're struggling today, you know, and, you know, giving people that opportunity to say, actually, I am. Um, it's thinking about how you might deal with a difficult situation before you go. You know, you, you cope with mechanism at home might be to go out to the gym, you know, when you've had, um, when you've had a difficult day, you know, in the emergency department, that's not going to be the case when you're there. You know, you might not actually be able to leave the compound where you're staying, um, so you have to think to yourself, well, actually, you know, is it going to be that I can just go and listen to a podcast, a yoga podcast and just, you know, sit in a quiet space? Is it going to be a good book? Is it going to be that you're going to journal? Um, you know, I've always found that talking with my team, just saying, you know, I found this really difficult today. And it might not be something that somebody thinks is immediately difficult. It might not have been a huge trauma case that you were dealing with or, you know, um, the death of a patient that you were looking after. It might be something really small that's really triggered you. Um, but it's actually then being able to speak with your team. And I found that really, really helpful, being able to debrief at the end of my day. Um, it might be somebody else says, I, you know, I really don't want to talk about it. But it's actually just thinking in advance, you are going to be in a highly stressful environment. Um, you know, things are going to be unpredictable. And what are going to be your coping mechanisms? Um, I remember on one response, um, um, a fellow uh, colleague gave me um, a bag of jelly tot sweets and just said, when the day gets tough, have a few. And it was so true. Just having three jelly tot sweets <laughs> of an evening um, or at the end of my shift, it was just a moment, you know, that just was so simple, but helped me so much. And, it, you know, that might sound like the most ridiculous um, example but that really helped me because that person had the insight before I left to say this might help it help me um, so you know I think really thinking in advance what is going to help you so that you've gone away with those tools to know what will help you in advance so looking at some of the clinical need and the sort of the profile of injury patterns that that uh, there might be currently within uh, within Ukraine. It seems to be predominantly blast and ballistic, but like you said, there are lots of second order effects as well. So a lot of elective surgery and or chronic pathology, which isn't necessarily being being um, stewarded or looked after in, in the same in, in the same regard. Could you maybe speak to um, deployments you've seen in the past around blast and ballistic injury pattern and what that does to uh, hospital resources and indeed sort of staffing and clinical decisions when you, you you do start to get an overwhelming number of cases in from sort of blast and ballistic or gunshot wounds 
Yeah, I can't speak from personal experience of working in a conflict zone because I haven't deployed to a conflict zone. I've been prepared to deploy to a conflict zone. Um, but um, speaking with colleagues that have been in those situations, um, I think capacity is a huge is issue. Because, um, you know, dealing with these injuries can require, you know, a lot of theatre time can require, you know, a, a substantial team. And it's not just the initial trauma surgery, you know, it's not, maybe not one operation, it might be multiple operations. Um, and then there's the ongoing care, you know, it's the wound care and the potential um, uh, wound infections and complications that can arise um, afterwards. Um, in the Ukraine, um, antimicrobials are um, commonly available over the counter. So it's already um, a country that has a high level of antimicrobial resistance. Um, you know, so aspects like that need to be taken into consideration, um, which might complicate wound healing or, you know, with, with the use of antimicrobials um, going forward. Um, it's the availability of um, equipment like, um, you know, splints, um, um, surgical kits, you know, um, infusion pumps, you know, you get a complex, um, a patient with complex needs, you know, you might need um, an intensive care environment. Do you have that environment, you know, and, and, and staff that are working within these facilities, particularly the local staff, where maybe access into facilities to provide um, um, access healthcare personnel, um, staff are going to be tired and they're going to be very, quickly burnt out as well as dealing with their own stress with their own concerns about their own families um, and also what you do find is that um, healthcare workers flee um, understandably you know and um, they're fleeing for their own safety with their own families so then ultimately you end up with an over-reliance of you know of, of healthcare facilities that are still um, are still manned um, you get the destruction of healthcare facilities, which obviously then puts an increased burden on the facilities that are remaining and are still fully functioning. So, you know, these facilities can very, very quickly um, become overwhelmed, um, you know, and in the Ukraine, we also do have um, the, the CBRN concerns. You know, if there's a chemical attack, you know, there's four nuclear facilities as well as the decommissioned Chernobyl facility. You know, and this just adds another layer of, uh, of overwhelming concern um, and complexity um, to an already highly difficult response. Um, so, you know, the, there are so many components um, to this situation, you know, and, you know, things like burns, you know, the ongoing care um, that's required and burns is a huge speciality in itself you know you've got fantastic organization like interburns you know and that do advise um, uh, countries in need um, because you know that's a, a hugely complex burns plastics um, you know trauma care these are specialty areas so karen um just as we come into land on the conversation just a couple more questions around sort of governance really and governance frameworks 
in a coordinated response. Um, how central are is governance and and indeed sort of retrospective analysis of targeted aid that it makes sure it does get to the right population within Ukraine? Yeah, so governance frameworks. So you know, it's it's very very difficult. It's one of the things that the um, WHO emergency medical teams um, initiatives. Um, um, has set about doing it's trying to provide standards and that, ensuring that people are working to standards. Um, you know, we're all um, very aware of some safeguarding issues um, that you know um, came to the forefront um, within non-governmental organisations. And now, you know, one of the key requirements is that you know um, aid workers are trained, for example, in safeguarding issues. Um, you know, particularly um, in any crisis, you're going to be working with unaccompanied minors, um, uh, young women who are vulnerable. Um, you know, you have the real, you know, the real risk of sexual and gender-based violence um, and child exploitation, human trafficking. Um, so it's making sure you know we're all aware of these issues, um, that we're adequately trained, and these are things that are now sort of standards within. Um, an aid response that are expected. You've got the monitoring and evaluation of programs, which you know is considered you know hugely stepped up now. And these are these are things that aid organisations um, should have as a fundamental requirement, um, so that they they can report um, in on interventions. Um, and it's ensuring you know absolute basic things that we work with local populations, that we uphold their local cultures and their standards of practice, that we don't jump in trying to apply our own principles, our own standards, um, and that we think that we know what's best. Um, there are often um, guidelines have been, you know, set out by the Ministry of Health, um, and there will be guidelines, you know, within the Ukraine that the Ministry of Health set out and it's it, it's not up to us as an international population to go in and start changing these and putting our own spin on things it's following their codes of conduct it's it's following their practices and it's really important that we do this you know and it you know uphold the best practice within the ukraine or within um the best practice within the surrounding countries um and that is always a real risk um, in aid responses, and I've seen that time and time again um, in, in responses. It was a huge problem working in Sierra Leone um, to the point that, you know, some of the um, local healthcare workers were like, oh, and another team's coming in and they're trying to change the practice. And we just kept to say, you know, reiterating, you work within the standards of the country. Um, and that, that, that's really important. And that's things that people can be doing now if they're thinking they're going to respond and that they're going to be based, you know, have an idea of where they're going to be based, they can start learning about what the local cultures and healthcare practices are, what are the local prescribing practices, you know, and that can help inform um, uh, prescribing antibiotics, prescribing of, you know, general medications, um, supporting primary care and prescribing practices, for example. So, you know, that, that's real key things that, that need to be upheld, um, and, you know, that come under that. So Karen, as we come into land on the conversation, just looking at take-home messages, what could people do to prepare themselves um, in readiness for um, deployment on a humanitarian mission? 
Um, I think there's a fair amount you can do to prepare yourself and whether that be working with an organisation based within the Ukraine or working um, on um, a healthcare project that's set up in a surrounding country. Um, there's, you know, there's simple things you can do. Um, there's online courses um, that will help you as a healthcare professional um, ready to deploy within these environments. Um, you know, I've already mentioned um, preparing yourself um, with some security training. So um, there's many, um, there's an online free course, the UN security um, course, which um, is um, available free online. Um, and if you can access um, a hostile environment awareness training course or something of that nature, you know, these are courses that are normally three to five days face to face. But, you know, excellent courses of a high standard. Um, consider what language skills you have. Have you got a, have you got a language skill that might be useful? Um, or are you good at languages? Can you learn a language? Um, you know, because the, these will really, really help you. Um, and, you know, um, other, other online courses, um, in these, on the site um, OpenWHO, uh, there's a range of free um, humanitarian training courses as well as by um, an organisation called Disaster Ready, which is disasterready.org. Um, they have uh, numerous um, online free training courses, as does um, uh, the Man- Manchester-based organisation UK Med. Um, they have a f- um, free access course, Introduction to Humanitarian Healthcare, um, and also um, looking at undertaking some safeguarding training. Um, and, for example, ensuring that... Um, your DBS check is up to date, things like this that will help you. Um, you probably also need to consider um, the organisation you're going with, what security provisions do they provide? Um, because that's something that sometimes is overlooked. And I think when you're looking at working um, in a conflict environment, um, you know, your, your security plan um, and your security, your emergency security exit plan is fundamentally important. Um, and what insurance does that organisation provide? For example, um, is your indemnity insurance um, covered um, to work within that country? Um, does your own personal indemnity insurance cover you um, to practice in another country? And you know, I think these are things that are often overlooked. Um, you can um, uh, look at things like the um, Sphere Project, which. Um, outlines uh, the minimum standards um, required in a humanitarian response. Um, and that's a manual you can actually download for free. It's, it, it's also worth having um, a hard copy of that um, and making yourself familiar with these minimum standards. Um, as well as looking at things as well, like your own mental health. Um, having a mental health problem yourself is not a barrier to engaging in a humanitarian response. But actually considering is it the right time for you now to engage? Is your mental health quite stable? And being honest with the organisation that you're going in, many of them will um, ask you to undertake um, a personal health check. And don't hide the fact if you're taking medication, don't decide to suddenly stop taking that medication. Be honest. Um, But it's making sure that your own personal mental health is in a good place before you engage. Because the last thing you want to do is enter any of these environments and suddenly become um, a burden and that's another consideration in any humanitarian response is that you need to be going and your team and organization needs to be self-sufficient 
and that's with food, vehicles, water, uh, medical supplies. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's making sure that you are self-sufficient because if not, you're just going to deplete the already finite resources that are in those countries. And, you know, you can then actually become more of a problem yourself. So it's making sure that you've taken lots of these um, various things into consideration. So uh, lots of food for thought there. And that's fantastic. And absolutely, there's there's a multiple things that uh, need to be considered. And uh, those are a fantastic uh, selection of things. So isn't that just, just uh, uh, I just want to say thank you, actually, for the last hour of your time and your thoughts um, on what is very uh, complex and protracted uh, as the events proceed in Ukraine. But just fantastic to get your perspectives, Karen. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, I wish everybody that works on projects either within Ukraine, surrounding countries or um, with affected populations, you know, I wish them all the best. And like everybody else globally, we wish for a very um, speedy resolution um, to this horrendous conflict. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Aaron.